assemble the right network of advisors and mentors, you've got to have support. You don't need it now. You're going to need it later. A mistake that I see almost every startup doing, which is starting with the product rather than starting with the distribution. So why don't you tell us like what you do and how do you make money? Well, you're making a couple of assumptions there. Uh, I'm, still, I'm still in a startup, so making money is still tenuous. But five years ago, I left a large company. In fact, it's the world's largest asset manager and started an online investment firm. We were told that it was the world's first online broker dealer for early stage investments. Then about three years ago, I started another company, which is aimed at technology companies, mostly early and middle stage technology companies. It's not quite uh, an accelerator. We were very clear that we didn't want to be a co-working space because we think of co-working spaces as commercial real estate and really nothing more. And I think the reason that a lot of co-working spaces are not right and don't create the right kind of culture and atmosphere for technology companies is that they are, in fact, built and designed as offices. So we've created something that's a little bit closer to an accelerator. We do a lot of training programs. We have at any given time 30, 35 companies in here, and now we're expanding around the world. What's the name of that? Uh, that company is called The Vault. The okay. first company I started is called Seed Change, and both are still active, growing. And back to your question about how do we make money, well, I'm still hoping for that payoff. What do you think is the best thing to, for you to share that can help the audience the most? Over the long term, this turns out to be a lot harder, I think, than people anticipate. It's impossible to predict all the difficulties and the obstacles you're going to have to go through. But what we do know is there are going to be a lot of unexpected roadblocks, conflicts, issues to, to solve. And when the time comes, sometimes there are going to be things that you can't talk about with your co-founder or co-founders. You probably can't talk about with your significant other because he or she doesn't have the right context and maybe is sick of hearing about work anyway. Yeah. You certainly can't talk about with your employees and you probably can't talk about with investors, maybe board members. You need somebody else who can be a sounding board and can help provide some support along the way. Related to that is something I see people talking about more and more in the recent start spaces, the issues of anxiety, depression, you know, the real psychological impact that uh, starting a company, becoming a founder uh, can put on you. And, and again, I think this, the solution to that is to have somebody that you can discuss issues with. Gotcha. Okay. So like I said, if you don't mind, again, just quickly brushing over, mostly your time split between the vault and sea change. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. It's not surprising that sea change is based inside the vault. Part of the reason for starting the vault was to support sea change. So in a lot of ways, I kind of, uh, when I'm doing work for one, I'm doing work for the other. Right. If that makes sense, because there's just so much overlap. Sea change is, in fact, the investment partner for the vault. Uh, we do and we can and do provide a lot of guidance, support for companies here when they're thinking about fundraising, developing a funding strategy and so on. How many people work at Sea Change? Sea uh, Change, we have six, and in the vault, we have ten. Okay, so are you mostly managing over those people? What's your day-to-day kind of interaction and with, I guess, Sea Change in the vault? With Sea Change, because we're launching a couple of funds, I spend most of my time really talking to investors. Some amount of time ta- also talking to startups. Um, every um, every startup that we look at, it gets to a certain point, and I want to be involved, and I want to know 
more about the company. One of the things that we put a lot of emphasis on is the founding team. And it's one of our learnings from when we started coming out of Barclays Global Investors and BlackRock. I kind of naturally, I think we took a, a quantitative approach to investing, thought that we could develop algorithms that would allow us to push data through on hundreds of thousands of companies a year and in a way come out with a green light, red light for each company. And one of the things that we learned is that at the early stage, at least, there are a lot of things that matter, all the things you would expect, product and market, IP technology. But the single probably most important factor, we think, is there's character and backgrounds, personalities of the founding team members. And so we now think of investing at this stage, again, is a lot more like drafting professional athletes. You know, every year at the NFL Combine, I mean, everything that an athlete can do is measured down to you know, the circumference of all three knuckles on your pinky and incredibly minute pieces of data. And still every year you see some team or another drafting somebody that's got all the right numbers, all the right, the great, uh, incredible measurements and comes out well in testing. But everybody in the country knows that he's a complete bozo and is going to be a flame out. And we think of investing kind of like that, that we focus a lot on data, but the real key, the real deciding factor for us is the leadership quality, the problem-solving ability, the ability to remain steady. Persistence is big, and I don't know of any good quantitative measures for those. So that still becomes an important piece of what I do in today. Okay. And do you have like an example without naming, you know, one a company or where you have different personalities that didn't fit and didn't work out very well? Yeah, I can give you an example of one of the things that led us to that conclusion. Uh, a reasonably high-profile company that went through Y Combinator three or four years ago, I can't remember which year anymore, uh, finished in August. They raised more than $2 million right off the bat, closed down the company in November. And the reason they closed it down, you know, returned what was left, which was a significant portion of that amount. They returned to investors. But the reason they closed down was they said their hearts just weren't really in it. And it was so much work, they didn't see the point of continuing in something that, that they weren't incredibly passionate about. I thought that was tremendously disappointing. That's the kind of thing we're trying to sort for, is somebody that's got the persistence and the drive and the ability to stick it out. Because we all know going into it, or at least we do, that it's going to be hellish. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I guess, would you say mainly then it's that persistent you're looking for, it sounds like, but how about some, I guess, the opposite side? What are you making sure that they don't have when you're looking to invest? Well, it's easy to say, you know, integrity is an important piece. We do look at people's backgrounds. We do things as simple as credit checks. Uh, you want to see how people have managed their lives vis-a-vis -vis other people, other entities up, up to now. Um, so we're looking for an absence of black marks. Right. And we do reference checks. We like to talk to people that have worked with the founders in the past. We also do customer interviews um, because we like to see one of the things that we're looking for is how this team reacts to their customers. We think customer is more than just service, but the ability to be responsive to customers and to 
really be listening to customers so that you can react and recalibrate is a really big deal. And you know, not infrequently find people whose interactions with the company have been, and even though these are customers that have been referred to us by the company, but we find you know they, they tell us that the only real interaction with the company has been with somebody customer service. Maybe it's been a chat, maybe it's been email. They've never really felt like anybody at the company, these or others, were sort of personally involved. And at this stage, I think that's an important, important thing to do. Okay. And so, you said, I mean, we're mostly focused on our talk so far about people, I guess, who've come through Sea Change and the Vault. Um, how about before this? I know you talked about it briefly, but all the way from, I guess, when you lawyer by trade or went to law school? Yeah, once upon a time, that was a different life. Gotcha. Well, what's happened kind of between <laughs> now and then? That might, yeah, Have you always been involved in startups after that or in the business world? And what kind of advice can we pick through that as far as your journey to when you got to Sea Change in the Vault? Yeah, so we'll give you a, just a quick chronology. Once upon a time, I was a grad student at Berkeley, and like every you know, grad student at Berkeley, at least, uh, you lose your funding at some point. And so I had a friend who was working in a startup that was just about to launch a product, and they needed help in sales and marketing, and I thought, how hard could that be? And as it turned out, I thought it was really fun and really interesting. And not long after, so after I had passed PhD exams, I had already applied to law school, I hadn't gone, I got really out of the blue and offered to go work in Eastern Europe in doing sales and strategy consulting for a company. And again, thought that was more fun than sitting in the library. So I went off to Fred Law School, ended up doing that five years, starting a company in Russia and, and building that out for several years before law school was essentially like, like we've deferred you five years this is the last time. Last time, make up your mind, get in or out. And I kind of had the thought that I don't want to be 90 and sitting on the golf course thinking, damn it, I wish I'd gone to law school. And so I went ahead and did it, knowing that I probably didn't really want to be a lawyer the rest of my life, but thinking that this was a good transition and some good preparation for whatever it was I was going to do. Then I, after, after law school, I practiced for a large firm in Silicon Valley for a while and then joined the iShares team at Marcus Global Investors and developed and launched locally traded, exchange traded funds in Mexico, Chile, Colombia, Brazil, Peru, Australia, Dublin, Singapore, Japan, and New York, which is kind of the least interesting of all. Gotcha. And after that, I really wanted to get back into the startup space and um, thought about something that could pull all of these things I've been doing together. And that's part of what led me to um, to join with some people from BlackRock and launch Seed Change. Okay. And are there any stories or anything, I guess, before Seed Change that could help our audience? Yeah, at some point, and I don't even know where, but at some point I realized that I'd been really fortunate to work in, in some unusual organizations. And some were large, some were small. But in the positive cases, these were places where everybody was really smart and creative and interesting, but also really nice. And the more I thought about it, like all of us, I suppose, I've been in places where you get one of those, but not both. You know, a company or an organization or a team where everybody is incredibly bright, but just real jerks. Or you're in a place where you know everybody's nice, but they're not actually accomplishing much. And that's not much fun either. The places where that Venn, Venn diagram overlaps are rare. And that led me to thinking that on the one hand, I look closely at culture when I was looking at companies I wanted to join. I wanted to know how people interact, how people work together, um, if they do, what the environment was like, how hard it was going to be to advance in an organization. And on the other hand, in developing my own companies, I've tried to focus on, in a very flat 
structure, making sure that people all recognize or that whatever their title, whatever their role, we ultimately expect people to wear a lot of hats and develop skill sets across a lot of areas and really importantly to keep learning and growing. I think um, things change so fast, you can't possibly know what you want to be doing five years from now or 10 years from now. And if you don't keep learning and developing yourself, you're not going to have the opportunities that you're going to want to have. Okay. Then, like I said, we kind of talked about Sea Change of Vault, kind of your journey back up to it so how did you were you able to even start seed change like what goes into doing something like that a lot of beer yeah. uh, a lot of late nights mm-hmm. we started in sort of classic silicon valley fashion in my garage and spent a few nights a week after hours as well as all weekends uh, working in the garage and developing the ideas, starting to develop the technology, the platform. Also spent a lot of time talking to people. And I think that's something that, that everyone considering starting a company or even launching a product inside a company ought to be doing is, is talking to everybody you can about your idea and how it's going to work. I think at least in Silicon Valley, you find that people are really open, which wasn't true maybe 15 or 20 years ago where there was a lot more secrecy about what people were doing and less willingness to to share. I think people now have gotten, have accepted the fact that virtually nobody is going to copy your idea, whatever it is. And as the founder of Atari and Chuck E. Cheese and I don't know, eight or 10 other companies, Roland Bushnell kind of famously says, everybody who's ever taken a shower has had a great idea. And what really matters are the ones that get out, dry off and go make that idea a reality. And so I think it's incredibly important to talk with everybody you can about what you're trying to do, um, get feedback, take the criticism because it'll save you a lot of time and a lot of headaches and probably you're going to end up doing things a lot faster than you would if you stayed holed up in the garage all the time. Gotcha. And were you in San Francisco during this time, the whole time? Close by. Yeah. Okay, gotcha. We're in San Francisco, but I live just uh, just outside the city. Gotcha. And so like said, when you're doing scene change and starting it, like I said, you invest in these companies, but how did you get that money to invest? Did you save up enough during this time? Did you go to families and friends? And how does that work with trying to get money in order to invest in these type of startups? That was one of the really, there's a point, at least for somebody who has kids and a mortgage where jumping out from the security of the big company that, that you're working with and going out with absolutely no income and no real prospect of an, of an income anytime soon is kind of scary. I had a lot of encouragement from people, mostly friends, previous colleagues who urged me to do what we were thinking about doing and also offered to invest. So we had already lined up some amount of um, investment before we pulled the trigger and continued over the, you know, maybe the next six months to talking to people and ultimately to round up enough um, along with money that we put in ourselves but enough to get us going and it's a hard process I think that's another process that people probably often underestimate it takes a lot of focus a lot of really hard work it's one of the reasons I think being a single founder is incredibly different difficult I liken it to being a you know single parent of like five kids you can do it but God is hard and one of the reasons you need multiple founders is some Somebody is going to have to be focused on fundraising almost full time for several months. And if you're doing that, you're not going to be involved in building product and developing the product. So you got to be able to divide responsibilities. 
Gotcha. When you're getting that investment, I mean, were those people like clients or family, like clients when you're a lawyer? Or like, how do you even find those people just to get a little bit more of the details there? Yeah, part of it came from talking with uh, people about the idea. You know, as I said, we talked with everybody we could. I mean, literally hundreds of investors about this concept we had, why we thought it was interesting, why we thought it was important. We weren't right about a lot of things. We were right about some of the things, but we were right enough, at least some people thought we were right enough that a lot of old colleagues, and friends and some cases people that we got introduced to just to get feedback on the idea also asked if they could invest and that way it's kind of like the old saying like they ask for advice and you can get money ask for money and you'll get advice mm-hmm. uh, yeah i think that's kind of how it turned out okay just again to people can understand like tactics is when you're going to these people, are they saying, hey, you know, I'll give you 20K, I'll give you 100K. I don't know what type of differential that we're looking at, you know, how much they can invest versus how much they're not. And then let's just say you get enough people. Can you tell us about just that first company that you actually took that investment fund and how you invested in into the startup? So we started as an online investment firm. And so we think of it a little bit like, you know, Schwab or an E-Trade or public companies, only this is for private companies. So we find companies diligence them, produce a description of the company, um, summary of key information that we think investors ought to know, and then make it possible for investors to go through the process without ever meeting the company or ever having to go through the entire diligence process because we've already done it. We also make all the legal documents, um, they're standardized, they're streamlined, they're automated, we make all this possible. Now, so that's how the first company that we funded, and frankly, that was one of the disappointments too. Um, the first company that we got funded was a company started by who really really, really smart guys from Stanford who dropped out after freshman year to spend the whole time on this particular project. We liked it. We liked them. We thought this real had real legs. And we started going out to investors for the company at the very end of the year, closed an investment round with them in February. And to our great consternation in April, they agreed to be acquired by a large publicly traded company. That kind of sounds like a good outcome, I suppose, better than losing the money. Right. You know, investors got back a return of capital plus a very small margin. And, you know, for three or four months of use of your money, it wasn't a bad return, but this fits did not fit the investment profile for that investment of any of these investors. And so one of our learnings really was we rarely will look at a company with really inexperienced founders. Because I think in this case, people who had a little bit longer track would have recognized that two or three or four more years down the road, they'd have had something still able to be sold, but for a lot more money. And it would have been less attractive to the idea of fundamentally it was an aqua they were brought into this acquiring company. Gotcha. And for those who don't know, Aqua hires is acquisition to hire. Can you just explain that a little bit? Yeah, you know, a lot of companies, a lot of large companies acquire a small startup less because they want the technology and or the product or the business that they're acquiring and more because they want to get the services of the team. I suppose I can't think of a great example off the top of my head, except maybe you might look at Walmart.com's acquisition of Jet as partly an aqua hire. I mean, they paid billions of dollars for it, but peers from seeing what they've done over the past couple of years or however long it's been since that acquisition that Walmart might have been paying most for that founding team and less for the company and the product. Okay. Yeah. All right. Thanks for sharing. Like I said, that first company that went through. 
So all in all, I guess ideally the idea was if that startup lasts, do you all want to see it last at least 10 years or five years and then go ahead and that's what you consider a home run or just because it was a couple months ago, do you consider it kind of like a first base hit? Like you said, at least you got the money back plus a little bit more. Yeah. One way we think about investing is we call ourselves money ball investors. Uh, we're not... Um, our funds are going to be very small funds. They're not going to be $500 million, billion dollar funds. And we're going to be investing small amounts, relatively small amounts in companies and in small companies, early stage companies. And what do you consider small just so people know? The average investment probably for really early stage, $100,000 for seed or A round, probably one to two million. Okay. Gotcha. And we're really, we're not swinging for the fences on every investment. We don't want to lose money. That's a really important criterion. I think the, the normal rule of thumb for venture investing is we expect six or seven companies to go to zero and one to be a home run and a couple to make some money. We take a different approach. We want every single one of our investments to make money. We're not looking for that company that could become an overnight sensation or become a unicorn in five years. I'd be honestly totally happy if we never had a unicorn, but if every single one of our investments was a single or a double. Gotcha. And so I said, I guess this was started about five years ago was when that first company went through because that's when you started seed change. Is that about right? Well, it was less than that because it took us a while to A, build the platform and the register with FINRA as a broker dealer. Mm -hmm. And that took both of those things took a little longer than anticipated. So we really launched publicly in 2014 uh, with the online platform. And then in 2015, really started doing a lot more shifting away a little bit from the online process and putting a lot of our attention on sort of one to one and more personalized approaches to investors, institutional as well as high net worth. Oh, yeah. Why do you make that transition? Were you not getting the volume yeah. that you're hoping for? We were far from the volume we hoped for. And one of our learnings, you know, we launched uh, beta at the end of 2013. We launched publicly at the beginning of 2014. We did some real in-depth, soul-searching latter part of 2014, looked at other companies, took a deeper look at other personal finance companies. And one of the things that we learned is that this takes a long time. You know, we've looked at really successful companies and realized that it took 10 years or more to get real volume. And we just found that investors that we had don't know and have existing relationships with are really slow to get into this asset class. So we put a lot more attention on being kind of a more traditional investment firm. It's also why we started uh, raising funds. And that's part of the reason that uh, led us to launch the vault as well is to create a really good pipeline for what we do and uh, kind of a stage for us to operate on. Gotcha. Was that two years or slump that you had once you started Seed Change? Can you talk about some of the lowest moments, either in the business or personally, that you kind of had to go through? Because, like I said, I don't think a lot of want to be entrepreneurs or new businesses really think about some of the personal stuff that you have to go through and, and the down parts. Yeah, the hard parts are figuring out why this beautiful baby that you've brought into the world isn't making money. You know, we continuously, all through the process, as I said, we talked to lots of people at every step, incorporated a lot of feedback into what we were developing, got a lot of compliments from people about educational information that we put out, about the training programs, the workshops that we did, the quality of the companies that we were offering to potential investors. 
we just didn't get people putting enough money through the platform for it to really be seen as a successful business. And, you know, I was having this conversation yesterday with somebody else who launched an online investment platform about the same year and who was sort of bitterly laughing at something I wrote in a recent newsletter, which is, you know, essentially that while people apparently love the concept of online investing in all kinds of asset classes, and while alternatives become a bigger and bigger portion of people and institutions' portfolios over the past two or three years, the volume of investment, putting that investment through an online platform isn't anywhere near what people predicted. And that was true of us as well. So we really, in late 2014, cut team, really ratcheted back to bare bones, had to get I'd go through a bit of a negotiation with my wife to get a pass to uh, continue not making money. Yeah. And that was really tough. And in fact, at the time, or actually early 2015, my co-founder decided that he really needed to do something that was going to be productive sooner. And he left. And you know that, that was a hard transition. How about we're going back personally about your wife? I mean, so I, I, during this point, I mean, did you just have a small salary or did you have no salary? Did, were you just living off what you had saved up before? And can you just talk about kind of maybe that added stress that you have whenever you're an attorney, you know, I guess you could probably go back there and make good money. And did you ever like think about that during this time? Oh, believe me. <laughs> One leaves a lot of money on the table to do this sort of thing. And for part of the time, the company was paying me a really small salary and part of the time, nothing at all. In fact, most of the time, nothing at all. And fortunately, my wife has a very good career and has been able to support us this time. But well, frankly, I think she she would say that's not something that she really signed up for. And, and it's been difficult. I mean, there are times when we've sort of joked ruefully about the fact that it's almost like living as grad students again. And somehow that was more fun when we were, were actually grad students. <laughs> right. <laughs> and it was a little bit later in life. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. And so like I said, I mean, when your co-founder left, was that middle 2015 or end of 2015? Yeah, it was early 2015. And, and we were, you know, so I spent some time um, talking with advisors and uh, really thinking that uh, the fund, launching a fund was a better path, at least at that point. We really turned our attention to getting out a couple of funds with LPs or all, almost all institutions or high net worth individuals. And we're gradually building that team back up. At the same time, then focused on kind of figuring out what the vault was going to be. And, you know, I think that took a couple of years um, to really develop a business model that I was confident was going to be able to withstand ups and downs in all kinds of markets, U.S. and non-U.S., you know, tech crashes and other kinds of economic downturns. And now in a way, figuring out where our market opportunity really lay. And, you know, in some ways, I think we were fortunate because the early stage investing, definitely in Silicon Valley, to some extent around the rest of the U.S., really went through a bubble in 2014, maybe early 2015, bubble that crashed. Investors really weren't putting money into early stage Companies and that I think forces you to become leaner as well as to become to figure out you know now that it becomes a stress test really on the business model and I think that was kind of in a perverted way that was a good thing to have happen early in the company's life so I feel a lot more confident that that we've got a model now that uh, is, a, is applicable in a lot of markets a lot of places in the world and some amount of affirmation because we've been asked by people in 
organizations, companies in more than 40 different cities in around the world to come open a vault location there. That's also been part of our learning about the market as well as about learning what where our place is. In it. Right. Could you tell us more about that business model that you thought would work for the vault and kind of how you might be different and why those other people or other cities are asking you to come in and talk about it? Yeah, I spent a lot of time over the years and in different places thinking about and so studying about what, what's different about Silicon Valley. You know, why is it in Silicon Valley it had incredible success? I was talking to somebody recently who's an innovation researcher, and he's got a model for how he defines an innovative company. And based on that model, he's gone and looked at regions around the world and looked at which you know cities have produced innovative companies. And not surprisingly, the bulk of them, in fact, the bulk of them globally comes out of San Francisco, Silicon Valley. But what's really surprising is that he's identified one, say, out of New York and one or two out of London and you know, one or two out of Boston, but 51 out of San Francisco. So it's not just that San Francisco is producing more than any other city. It's just that nobody's even close. It's sort of like the World Series winner against the high school baseball team. And I thought a lot about that and why that is and what are the ingredients that go into that. And, and one, I think, is culture. I think it's there. there's an openness. There's a willingness to talk, to support, to help people out here that I think is unique to this region or at least to the West. I think there's a bit of peer pressure, which I think in, in a good way. Um, so in a way, people out here, people who succeed are highly driven. But it's an internal thing. But, uh, but being around so many other people doing interesting things who are really smart and really driven causes people to sort of step up the game. And then I think um, that incredible support network that has been built up over the decades is really important. Most people look at Silicon Valley and think that they're going to recreate Silicon Valley and you know some other place, and they see Stanford and they see you know venture capital and think that what we need is to build a really great university or a great technical training program, and we need a lot of money. And you know other places that have done that, and all over the world, billions poured into say recreating Silicon Valley just outside Moscow and in the Emirates and place over and over and over. And it's not happening. It's not going to happen because I think there aren't enough places that are paying attention to the soft side of creating Silicon Valley. That's part of what we set out to do with Evolve, to create an ecosystem, a supportive, collaborative ecosystem of startups, later stage technology companies, investors, advisors, mentors, supporters, and ultimately to, to create a global network of people um, supporting startups. We sometimes say that about Evolve that we help people and companies grow better and faster. And all of those nouns and, and adverbs are important because it's not just about growth, it's about fast growth. It's about growing healthily. And to do that, you need to pay attention to individuals, the people inside the companies, as well as the companies themselves. Gotcha. So are you saying basically that y'all kind of focus, if I'm looking maybe at a Venn diagram where you have different types of companies or in different stages versus maybe another one's just kind of more solely just focused on the startup phase? Or does that ring true or am I missing something? Yeah, we focus most. So if you think about your average co-working space, for instance, a co-working space is totally different to the kinds of companies that are in there. In fact, in C-Change, we were in a co-working space for a while. I thought that was a great, it would be a great environment. Our neighbors were mortgage brokers and a call center and CPA firm, and a solo lawyer practitioner and a jewelry I mean, in short, people and companies we had nothing in common with. So we really focus on innovation. 
That's almost always expressed through technology companies. Then we're most focused on early stage companies or at least early stage businesses in the United States. So we think we're a very good landing pad for companies outside the U.S. that are looking to scale up and that are looking for a place and help getting their business off the ground in the United States. And so we have a lot of companies that are larger companies, uh, but their U.S. operations are, are, are based here or, or at least started here in the world. Gotcha. Okay. So from there, you said, do you think you're going to open another one or what's your ideas on that? Yeah, we have one that will open in Oslo in September, another in Korea in September. And then we've got other locations in the pipeline, probably not in 2017. It'll probably roll into 2018, but um, Helsinki, Stockholm, Zurich, Prague, Munich, San Jose, Chicago, Salt Lake City, Shanghai, Shenzhen, Seoul, and Singapore for maybe 2018, maybe some of those will roll into 2019. Right. So you plan on recent, on what that sound like 10 to 15 of them. So is it, you're already in, in that's like for sure you're going to go ahead and do that? Or are you just focused on the first two and then the idea is to go after those next 10 or so? We're at some stage or another in negotiations about all those locations. Okay. Well, yeah. So is that what you're most excited about now then? Well, I think, yeah. Sure. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like a great deal from where you've been, at least thus far, you know. It's one of the things that we discovered. You know, at some point, two or three years ago, I sat down and put together a list of places that I thought had the requisites for a successful vault location. And it's a list of like, you know, something like 100 places. Not many cities, I think, make sense to have more than one vault. San Francisco will someday have, have more than one. Um, so it's not 100 cities, but, you know, it's pretty close to, to 100 different cities in the world. And naturally, then I graphed out a timeline, knowing at the time that it would now never follow this timeline. But but I'll tell you, neither Seoul nor Incheon, Korea, were or were anywhere in the first five or six or seven years. What we found, though, is that there are places in the world that have recognized the need for what the vault can provide and have come looking for us. And it's those cities that I think are the greatest opportunity. So rather than sort of starting in San Francisco and radiating out in a logical progression, our first location is going to be, our first two locations, and they're going to open simultaneously, are going to be in two different continents. In a way, that doesn't make any sense at all. But in a way, it makes all the sense in the world because we've been from both places, we've really been pulled to open a vault location there. And part of what we find that that people and companies and organizations see when they look at the vault is the other end of a channel into Silicon Valley. And so what explicitly the group in, in Norway that was looking for was somebody who had the experience developing a, a, a technology ecosystem and startup accelerator that could also be a landing pad for good companies looking to scale up out of the Nordics. Okay. Yeah. I mean, well, that sounds damn exciting. So you know, got to get your excitement up a little bit there. I mean, is that, like I said, I don't try to go to a, through too many negatives. Just just want entrepreneurs to understand that there are some. But I mean, I'm excited for you. So congrats on that. Yeah, thank you. Well, like I said, now that we're winding down, let's just talk real quick about the best advice you might have for these entrepreneurs who are listening. And if you have any good lessons or efficiency hacks that you might have as far as how you use your time properly and to run the vault and see change. I think the most important thing anybody can do, uh, there are two things, right? One is, is something I talked about earlier, which is assemble the right network of advisors and mentors. You've got to have support. You don't need it now. You're going to need it later and you need it in place when, when the time comes and, and you've got to have people that you, you can consult with, advise, uh, get advice from, and sometimes you just vent to. 
The other is a mistake that I see almost every startup around the world doing, which is starting with the product rather than starting with the distribution. It's not uncommon at all to find really great technology, really great products, and companies that just don't have a clue how to get this out into the market. I think in the old days, um, sort of when I was getting started in the career, it was, it was typical for, for lots of people to go to work in the sales organizations of companies like Xerox and Kodak and IBM and, and, and HP and get incredibly good sales training and then for several years get very, very good sales management and then go off into another company. You know, people don't do that anymore. And so I, I find that it's pretty rare to find a startup that has put adequate thought and resources into how they're going to distribute the product. And so I don't know if this makes sense until you've tried to do it, but it's never the case that if you build it, people will come. It's never the case that people are waiting for your product to show up in the door and just dying to buy it. You've got to have a really thoughtful strategy and the resources put into sales and marketing right from the get-go. Okay. Well, um, said no. Well, I appreciate the last words of advice. Is, uh, I don't know if there's anything else, but if there is, let us know. But also, what's the best way for people to contact you and say thank you? Email is great. Mm-hmm. You can reach me at Kevin at the SF Vault, the San Francisco Vault, so T-H-E-S-F-V-A-U-L-T dot com. I think, think that's really important what you said there at the end. Marketing and sales is really, you got to be honed in on that in order to get some success going. So like I said, well, thank you for joining us, Kevin. And I guess we'll reach out to you and have your contact information in the show notes. So really appreciate your time today. Beautiful. Thanks, Austin. All right. Thank you. Have a good one. Thanks. Bye-bye. YOLO and hola. Thank you for tuning in to this episode. If you enjoyed it and want to show us a little support, then we would love for you to leave us a five-star review. It helps other potential listeners enjoy this fabulous show just like you. And it'll take less than 69 seconds to do it. I promise. And if you're looking for more episodes that are dealing with the real estate industry, then try out episode 15 with Jillian Hellman or episode 21 with Bill Lyons or upcoming episode 30 with Steve Wang. Thanks again for tuning in, and we'll catch you next episode.